happiness or commitment to sobriety or a sense of personal worth or a growing sense of gratitude and, and well-being, what have you. Positive traits foster positive states, which then become a wonderful new opportunity to reinforce that positive trait. That's the good news positive cycle. There's also the bad news cycle, the negative cycle, in which negative mental states readily and quickly become negative neural traits, which then foster more negative mental states. That's the negativity bias of the brain. Okay, So this is the how of it. And I should add that the second and third steps involve enriching the experience, getting those neurons to really fire together for a relatively long period, a dozen or two dozen seconds at a time. And in the third step, absorb, we can actually um, um, intensify and turbocharge the installation process by intending and sensing that the experience is really going into us. Okay? Or if I was to really summarize it, I'll use a little metaphor. It's like a fire. In the first step, we light the fire. We're having the positive experience. In the second step, we keep the fire burning and help it burn more brightly, uh, the fire, by enriching it. And in the third step, ah, we warm ourselves at the fire, absorbing into our being you know, the heat that we've created. Right? Or to be even simpler about it, this all boils down to four words, have it, enjoy it. Especially enjoy it. That's the installation phase. If we don't install these momentary, fleeting, positive states of mind, if we don't help them sink into the brain and start encoding a neural structure, they're momentarily pleasant, better than a stick in the eye, but they don't have any lasting value. There's no learning, which is the fundamental weakness in paths of healing and well-being and spiritual transformation even, you know. So I think it's really important to actually help our useful states sink in, okay? Uh, or if I was to really summarize all this, it would be two words, mo better. <laughs> in other words, more moments, more episodes in which we actually register a useful experience. We actually help it become a part of ourselves. And inside individual episodes of really registering these experiences, help it really, really sink in. More depth of engagement. Okay, so now let's take a look at applying this momentarily in an experiential practice. As the Buddha teaches here, don't underestimate these moments. He says, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. What a beautiful practice, right? As they say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. What's the most important minute of your life? The next one, minute after minute after minute. We can't do anything about the minutes in the past. More than a few minutes into the future, we don't have much influence. But the next minute, there's an opportunity there to harvest, to take in, to, out of kindness to ourselves and clear-eyed recognition of the way it really is, we can really give ourselves the gift of that which is good in this moment, helping it register in our brain and gradually sink in. One of the benefits of this is that slowly but surely, the internalization of the felt sense, even in the face of Mother Nature's well-intended whispering in the back of the mind, be afraid, be frustrated, be lonely, right? 
even in the face of those well-intended delusional lies, we can repeatedly, 10,000 times over, 10 seconds at a time, we can really register the felt sense of needs met. And as we do that, the underlying neuropsychological, biological basis for craving as a deficit state, as a disturbance state, that underlying basis gradually falls away. In effect, as I said earlier, cultivation gradually undoes craving. I think of this practice as obviously not the entirety of the path of awakening, which also must involve other things, such as virtue, uh, concentration, uh, the cultivation of insight, and who knows, maybe grace. Uh, But certainly, to really take the Buddha's formulation of the Four Noble Truths seriously, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering being craving as a deficit state, the truth of the possibility of the end of craving, the end of the cause of suffering, and thus the end of suffering itself, and then fourth, the fourth truth, the path that actually gets that job done, right? Well, if we really consider what in the world must have to happen to, uh, to embody the third noble truth, given the inner lizard, mouse, and monkey, this ancient you know, museum we're walking around as, given that, how do you actually come to the end of craving? Right? And I think a major piece of coming to the end of craving is to weave into emotional memory, you know, the, what's called implicit memory in psychology, weave into the marrow of our felt sense of living that we're actually already okay. And we don't have to grasp after the next transient moment of experience you know, to, to make our way in this life. Eventually, I think, cultivation falls away. Uh, the Buddha used the metaphor of the raft. We come to a river of suffering. We build a raft to get to the other side. But once we get to the other side, we don't walk around with the raft on our head. All right. Um, as we repeatedly cultivate, increasingly we no longer make deliberate efforts to cultivate. And increasingly, as some research is beginning to suggest, we probably have a brain that's increasingly sensitized to the good and increasingly efficient and quick at turning positive mental states into lasting positive neural traits. So cultivation falls away as we get to the other side of that river of suffering and we keep on going. That said, I think cultivation is a really, really profound um, aspect of practice for almost everybody. Okay. Any question or comment about this so far? And then we'll dump into a practice of it. Great. Right here in the front, Diane, you want to Give her the microphone. Okay, Diane's getting the mic. Hi. Ooh, loud. Good, yeah. Um, I wanted to check with you. I'm, I'm trying to get this, and I've read your books and get your emails. So I, I get the general thing, and I feel like I'm working on that one, but the sense of how does this tie in with not craving and not grasping and not letting things fall away moment by moment? Yep. Can it's you great. help it's me right to... on. And it's, it's kind of linked to this notion of reminiscence that someone else brought up. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. How do we? This is, you're exactly right. How do we both capture the benefits of cultivation, which is a traditional idea. The, the Buddha recommended cultivation. You know? Um, he said, that which we rest the mind upon uh, repeatedly uh, will gradually shape the mind. 
You know, and that's our choice, for better or worse. Do we rest the mind repeatedly on the sense of fear and frustration, pardon me, fear and anger? That would be in the safety system. Do we rest our minds repeatedly on frustration and disappointment in terms of the satisfaction system? And do we rest our minds repeatedly on feelings of envy or ill will or shame in terms of the, in loneliness, in terms of the connection system? Or alternately, in three broad terms, do we rest our mind repeatedly on whatever is authentically available to us in terms of peace, contentment, and love, in terms of avoiding harms, approaching rewards, and, and attaching to others, right? So he, he's a fan of cultivation. The trick, though, is how do we cultivate, right? The traditional word for cultivation is bhavana. I think of neurobhavana, all right? That's not going to be the title of a best-selling book, trust me. <laughs> neurobhavana. But anyway, that's what it is. Okay, that's this part of practice, this piece of the whole puzzle of practice. Okay. How do we do that without chasing after the pleasant, particularly since we have a brain that is designed to want what it likes? Okay. And in the afternoon, I'm going to talk about working with that distinction so that we can be with what's unpleasant or pleasant or heartfelt without tipping into wanting in, in problematic ways. We're on drivenness or going to war with our experience or grabbing on other people, whatever that might be. Okay. How do we actually do that? And so you see the, the problem, right? And I think the art of it, experientially, is to <clears throat> be both really receptive to and intimate with your own experience, um, to, to really, in a way, allow it in and open to what's wholesome, not denying what's painful or negative, if you will, in, or difficult in the world, but simply out of enlightened self-interest, opening to, you know, that which is positive, uh, helping the mind stay with it, preserving sanctuary for it in your own mind. It's remarkably hard for many people to sustain an ordinary, enjoyable experience for a dozen seconds. A moment of gratitude, a dozen seconds, tick-tock. It's not so easy. You know, a feeling of being cared about, feeling caring, you know, the registering of some insight or felt shift in meditation to really stay with that. So it can start converting from activated mental state to installed neural trait in terms of moving from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. To really do that ain't always so easy. So that's on the one hand what we do. While simultaneously relaxing around it, recognizing that this too shall pass, it's just one more experience. You know, getting all caught up in it is not helpful. Um, turning it into a thing doesn't help. And, you know, in my own experience of doing this a lot, um, there's kind of a natural wisdom that, that develops quickly because you realize as soon as you try to grab onto it, it no longer feels good. You, from have it, enjoy it, you're no longer enjoying it when you grab onto it. Paradoxically, and there's some wonderful metaphors that I can't quite produce about holding birds in your hand or something like that. If you grasp them too tightly, it doesn't really work. It's, it's kind of this light thing. Um, but, and also, I think it's your intention. As you gradually, as you repeatedly cultivate, and, and your intention is to fill up the cup inside so you're no longer thirsty. If that's your intention, you really do gradually um, become less driven in life. And you have less sense of feeling pressed. And then in particular, what you can do, and I'll talk more about this later, 
um, is you can go after those, those key experiences that really will help you to defuel, if you will, certain your particular type of craving. So if people have issues, as they often do, especially around the safety system, in terms of anxiety or anger or helplessness, repeatedly internalizing resource experiences that uh, have to do with avoiding harms, experiences like relaxing or registering that you're actually all right in this moment, or a sense of feeling protected. This all goes to safety, doesn't it? Or a sense of being strong inside, including the strength simply to endure, which is a really underestimated and undervalued and important component of strength, to endure, to last, to, to survive. Um, if you do that, then you're repeatedly taking in experiences that can gradually help you increasingly feel already resourced inside, so you don't have to resist what's unpleasant in terms of anxiety, anger, and helplessness. Similarly, if your own particular type of craving, you know, or if you will, or issues these days, your own particular territory of deficit or disturbance is in the satisfaction system, managed by approaching rewards. And this framework I use that draws upon frameworks from other people as well, and it speaks to our ancient reptilian, mammalian, and primate human stages of evolution. If your issues are more in the territory of frustration or disappointment or feeling thwarted or, or failed or just you know, blocked, including by external forces, discriminated against, mistreated systematically, what have you, uh, or you feel like your life is kind of dreary and isn't very rewarding, right? And that drives grasping after what's pleasant in terms of the approaching reward system. Then what you can do is repeatedly internalize experiences like that are key resources in that system, key reward experiences like gladness or gratitude or the felt sense of accomplishing goals, including especially little goals, like getting out individual emails, um, the bane of my existence, although it's, it's, I chose it for myself, but that said, uh, or finishing a load of laundry, let alone getting through bigger things, accomplishing bigger things, and also recognizing the fullness of the moment. Because if you look at your own experience in any moment, so much is happening. So those are key resource experiences to undo the causes of grasping after what's pleasant as a subset of craving. Okay, so far? And then if you think also as kind of a roadmap for yourself and what will help you the most or maybe help others you're working with, if, if your particular primary causes of craving broadly defined have to do with attaching to others, the connection system. In other words, you're grappling understandably with feelings of loneliness or, or being devalued by others or the residues from childhood of what's called narcissistic injury. Uh, that's where my main issues were or have been. Um, <clears throat> issues of feeling not seen, not prized, not recognized, not attuned to. Or maybe it just arises in you a sense of uh, envy for others or jealousy or feelings of inadequacy. This is the territory. These are factors that drive the clinging to others in one way or another. Uh, that's a subset of craving having to do with the ancient need to attach to others. Okay? There, your key resource experiences that you can cultivate. And again and again and again, look for as again a kind of roadmap for your own particular high value, high impact you know, uh, mental states to increasingly internalize as lasting neural traits. So you take these resources with you wherever you go in your own heart, in your own experience. Well, the kinds of resource experiences that can undo that clinging to others, that aspect of craving, are things like feeling included, 
just part of something, or a sense of being seen, or at least somebody wants to understand you, even if they don't do, don't do it perfectly, or a sense of being appreciated, rec, you know, respected. Uh, people are glad for your contribution, let's say, or the felt sense of being liked, including in fairly mild ways. You know, the guys in the deli, whatever. Uh, people casually in the apartment building you live in, feeling liked by them, and certainly loved. And also experiences, in terms of the attaching to others system, our needs for connection, other key resource experiences that can help undo the basis for craving and thus suffering, having to do with our social needs. Right? Other experiences there uh, are where we're transmitting craving, not just receiving it. In other words, experiences in which we're compassionate or kind or we can find happiness in the welfare of others. Uh, you know, love is love, whether it's flowing in or flowing out. And repeatedly in internalizing experiences of that sort can, there too, gradually undo the, that basis for craving. If you know what your key needs are, right, you can look for those particular supplies in life, legitimate, authentic opportunities, to have those key resource experiences that most uh, satisfy the longing in the heart, that most uh, nourish and take care of, the little critters inside your inner menagerie, using my metaphor not to take too seriously, the inner lizard, mouse, and monkey. If you know whether your focus is particularly around petting the lizard or your focus is particularly around feeding the mouse in terms of the reward system, or your focus is particularly around attaching you know, to others and hugging the monkey, then you can look for those experiences half a dozen times a day in everyday life and then really take them in. You know, When you find those key inner nutrients, bring a big spoon. Dum, 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 dum. Because <laughs> then you have them inside you increasingly wherever you go. And you're increasingly, uh, you increasingly relate to life in what I call the green zone the responsive mode, in which there's not a basis of deficit or disturbance. You may deal with challenges. There may be threats in terms of the safety system. There may be losses or obstructions in terms of the satisfaction, uh, approaching reward system. There may be uh, interpersonal difficulties. As you know, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote, it's probably puffing a cigarette, hell is other people, right? All right, so there might be issues there in that part of, the, of your life. But we can relate to those issues, as the Buddha did, and as he taught us to do, uh, and as many people um, exemplify in their own life, people known and unknown, the great and the, 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 you know, the high and the everybody, whatever. Um, we can relate to these things. We can relate to that which is unpleasant. We can relate to that which is pleasant. And we can relate to that which is heartfelt, including challenges in those areas, while resting in the green zone, while being stabilized in a centered place in which we already feel from the inside out fundamentally safe, satisfied, and loved and loving. And that's the opportunity in practice through cultivation. All right, let's do it. All right, so to do it, you got to be on your own side, okay? Bertrand Russell says here, the good life as he conceives it is a happy one, not so much because being good will make you happy, although it will, but Also, because people who are happy tend toward being good, as much research shows. 
There's some unfortunate exceptions that shall be nameless. We don't do politics from the front here. But um, most people, as they fill up their own cup, you know, they're more inclined to be patient, forgiving, reasonable, cooperative, helpful, altruistic, and so forth with other people. Or, as the Buddha puts it here, if we're going to help others, we need to resource ourselves first. Right? If one going down into a river, swollen and swiftly flowing, is carried away by the current, how can one help others across? Or as the airlines put it more prosaically, put your own oxygen mask on first. <laughs> All right? Okay. Okay, so far? So let's do a practice. So this will be a bit of a guided practice in which I'll go through a variety of prompts. We're being recorded here, which is great, right? Um, to see if you can open to, again, without straining about it, because then, you know, we're caught in craving again. But see if you can more open to or encourage a felt sense uh, having to do with each of these three fundamental needs we have, safety, satisfaction, and connection, which is obviously a simplification and so forth, and there are needs that don't quite fall into that framework so neatly. But that said, it's, I think, a useful fiction. Anyway, I'll go through uh, some guidance here, helping you kind of have a, a key experience or a st- open to uh, a state of mind in each one of these three uh, systems in terms of peace, contentment, and love. And I'll also give you a little guidance about helping the experience sink in. And as you can, see if you can be aware of the ebbing and flowing of um, craving, whether it's resisting what's unpleasant, uh, grasping after what's pleasant, or clinging to what's heartfelt. And see what it's like, if you can, gently, to help yourself have a mind in which there's very little sense of craving broadly defined. It's not necessarily full awakening. Uh, it's not irrevocable. It's not permanent, if you will. Um, but uh, uh, it's a real window into uh, the mind of a Buddha. So, to begin, there are a few prompts that I'll offer for each one of these uh, three systems in terms of accessing a felt sense of peace, contentment, and love. And some of these prompts might be especially useful for you. Perhaps others won't really do it for you. If you want to hang out with one particular prompt, even though I'm speaking of others, feel very free to tune out my voice and just do what's good for you. Okay. So to begin with, in terms of our fundamental needs for safety. See if you can help yourself increasingly relax here, finding a posture that lets you sit up straight while also easing in your body. You might want to take some long exhalations since exhaling involves the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system which is the so-called rest and digest wing that calms down the fight-or-flight sympathetic uh, wing of the nervous system. Or visualize those fluffy white clouds, what have you. Relax.
you can also be aware of feeling protected. You can recognize that you're in a safe setting among good people. See what it's like to feel protected. Also be aware of being strong. There might be a sense of vitality already in your body, perhaps determination in your mind. That's one way into having a positive experience, to notice one you're already having, even in the background of awareness, such as a sense of vitality in the body or determination in the mind. And you can also create a positive experience in order to have it in the first step. In this case, by recalling or bringing up deliberately the felt sense in the body of being strong. Including perhaps simply a sense of enduring. Being able to last, stand things, bear your own experience. That's two is an important aspect of strength. As you experience strength, for example, you can increasingly install this experience by enriching it, staying with it, helping it last. And you can install the sense of strength one more drop, drop by drop, one more bit at a time by absorbing it, by intending and sensing that it's sinking into you, giving yourself over to it, letting it move into you and grow inside you as an experience, perhaps imagining as you absorb it that the sense of strength is spreading within you, 
like a golden liquid or light. Or simply there could be a knowing or an allowing of letting yourself actually become just a little bit stronger in general as something you shift into and take with you wherever you go as you absorb this experience of strength. You're not clinging to the experience of strength. It's more like you're guiding it into a soft landing in your being. So see if you can feel increasingly safe here. Letting go of any unnecessary anxiety or guarding or bracing. And replacing any unnecessary anxiety that you've released with a growing sense of peace. The Buddha encouraged tranquility. It's one of the seven factors of awakening. He also talks about tranquilizing the body, the breath, the mind. (coughs) Tranquility as an aspect of peace. Resisting to what's unpleasant is falling away. That aspect of craving is falling away and you're recognizing that. As you abide as a body breathing, increasingly at peace.
It's okay if your mind wanders, just bring it back. To rest and kind of marinate in a sense of peace. And letting the sense of peace move to the background of awareness. Bringing attention more to uh, our natural needs for satisfaction, broadly defined. And here, helping yourself move increasingly into a sense of contentment a sense of well-being with no wish for this moment to be other than what it is. Helping yourself move more and more into a resting in contentment by beginning with bringing to mind a sense of what you're glad about or grateful for. In other words, without straining, using experiences that you're creating of gladness and gratitude to nudge you increasingly into a gentle sense of contentment. Thinking of things that help you feel happy.
as a way to strengthen your sense of contentment. Contentment can be quite subtle. A sense of just the enoughness of the moment. And in that enoughness, frustration falls away. Any sense of drivenness falls away. Disappointments fall away. In contentment, grasping falls away, that particular kind of craving. and letting contentment move to the back of awareness. Whatever kind of simple well-being you've cultivated. And now bringing attention increasingly to feeling loved and loving. Resting in love broadly defined. So for starters, think of one or more beings that you know care about you. It's okay if other thoughts come up like not feeling cared about. Note those and then as you can, come back to feeling cared about and help yourself feel cared about. And as you feel cared about, help that experience sink in. Take in that good by enriching the felt sense of feeling cared about and absorbing it.
There are different aspects to feeling cared about, any one of which is good. There might be a sense of simply being included, of belonging, or perhaps a sense of being seen. Or maybe it's about appreciation, feeling appreciated, respected, prized, valued, or liked or even loved, or a mix of some or all of these. See what happens inside you in terms of those longings for love or clingings to others or envy or ill will, seeing if you can let those aspects of craving fall away as you increasingly sink into feeling cared about, broadly defined. What happens inside you when you feel loved? Also being aware of being loving. For example, touching your own warm-heartedness, your own compassion or kindness toward others, your love for others. And here too, See what happens to any kind of clinging to others or craving as you rest more and more in a strong sense of your own lovingness.
and then see what it's like altogether to abide in a kind of integrated sense of peace, contentment, and love. If one aspect or another of those three things uh, is in the foreground of attention, that's okay. But see what it's like to have a global sense of peace, contentment, and love, feeling into what it's like to abide continually without any true basis for resisting, grasping, or clinging, without any basis for craving, enjoying peace, contentment, and love. Even a very subtle sense of these is fine. whatever global sense of peace, contentment, and love is present for you, taking it in, letting it sink in. Resting in the green zone with no actual basis, at least in this moment, no basis of deficit or disturbance that drives craving and harm. Recognizing this as your natural home base, the resting state.
One of my own teachers, uh, Gil Fronstel, uh, said that we should uh, continue to meditate through the formal end of a practice like a racer, a runner, uh, running through the tape at the finish line of a race rather than just you know, shifting gears so quickly. So it's perfectly okay if you want to continue some basic sense of peace, contentment, and love here. Uh, any comments or questions? about the practice that we just did. Maybe Diane will get you the microphone. So right there, Diane, if you keep your hand up behind you there, she, she can find you. Uh, Rick, on that last practice of love, um, we all know a lot of people in our lives and many, most of us have gone through periods where we don't feel loved or very loving towards others. So it just seems to me, and just your comment on where to start that is love of self. Do you love yourself? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, the short version, or for me, the, my short response would be any port in a storm. In other words, it's really interesting, by the way, I, I, before I did my recent book, I put out this query about stories of taking in the good. I was stunned by how many kind people sent me, um, like I think there are about 900 altogether responses. And this was two years ago. And, um, or yeah, about a year and a half ago. Anyway, a lot of them involve pets, animal companions. So that's a very powerful one for people to feel cared about or caring. Um, some people relate to nature altogether. Some people pull up a memory, their grandmother and her oatmeal raisin cookies. Uh, other people, they go more, as, as you're getting at, to a sense of being loving or even uh, a kind of goodwill for themselves. You know, going back to the, the Buddha's comment here, right, about getting on our own side. So sure, whatever, whatever works for you. Uh, could be a group of people in your life these days. Um, it's natural for other thoughts to arise, not feeling cared about or cared about in the right way or by the right people. It's all okay. But to come back to um, what authentically we can locate in terms of feeling cared about in any way, shape, or form, or feeling caring, that's really good. And if a person can't locate that, I would just encourage them to keep looking for opportunities to do that. For one, as the Dalai Lama puts it, if you can be happy that others are happy, you will always be happy because somebody somewhere is happy. <laughs> always. <laughs> so, uh, and and as we gradually, we're as we gradually, as I put it, you know, build out slots in the motherboard, as it were, inside the mind. We start increasingly become capable of having certain key experiences, such as feeling loved or loving. Okay. Great. A few more here. Great. Over here. How about we'll just do it here for simplicity. Great. Well, first of all, it's great to see you again. Hear you. Um, during the meditation, I didn't. I wasn't particularly comfortable, but I had the experience of had more and more that I was so peaceful, even without being comfortable or without summoning those memories, that it was very pleasant. I wanted to ask you about that 10 or 12 seconds, because I've discovered this sort of embarrassing thing that I have real trouble taking in the good because I feel like someone is going to notice it. And it's almost like an embarrassment, like if not by people, by God, like somebody's going to notice me lingering around. And 
Um, I had a real good moment last night, and I was hearing a Dharma talk, and I noticed I didn't, there were a bunch of people in the room who had a good moment listening to the Dharma talk, and I didn't want to connect with them. I wanted to get out of the room as quick as possible, and I couldn't do the 12 seconds, but I went home and I thought, I do not want to lose this. So I wrote a very long email to someone who I felt like I could trust, and I said, this is exactly why this experience hit the jackpot. And there was this, and there was this, and there was this. And I made sure I didn't leave anything out in the email, and suddenly it dawned on me, if I can't do my 12 seconds, then maybe maybe it needs to be in that form. But I, I would love some wisdom around increasing the time, because I find like I'm embarrassed in front of no one. I mean, there's nobody noticing, nobody would even care, but there's a sense of, I'm not taking in the good. Right, right. All right, great. Well, thank you for all that. And I'm going to go backwards in my little slides here to this, um, you know, the method, if you will, which just tries to unpack a very natural process. All right. And uh, so first off, to be able to get an activated mental state to encode, it's kind of like, as I said, Mobetta. You know, the more neurons are firing, the longer they're firing, the more that it's felt in the body. And the more times we do this, the better. Right? And there's kind of a general dosing effect. So I, I use, by the way, the duration of around a dozen seconds as a very loose number. That's what I just that's why I pull a dozen out of the air. It's the basic idea that, as a lot of research on the neuropsychology of learning shows, if we don't hold uh, some uh, experience or information in short-term memory buffers long enough, if we don't keep it going, at least a few seconds usually, unless it's, a, unless it's a negative experience or a very intense positive one, unless we keep it going, it doesn't tend to transfer to storage very quickly, especially experiential material. We can transfer concepts and ideas to storage pretty fast, but the more ancient, emotional, motivational, which is where the action is, and sensory memory systems in the brain, they're slower, right? We need to slow it down, especially for the mouse and the lizard, as it were, in metaphorically speaking, to slow it down in terms of core experiences around um, frustration and certainly around safety, all right, anxiety. Okay, so that's part one. Part two, to actually do this, to help a good thing land, right? So it's not wasted on the brain. Most good experiences are wasted on the brain. Right? That's the dirty little secret in psychotherapy as well as other things. And I say this about myself here. To really help it sink in, there are two parts to it. One is capacity. That's where mindfulness training can really come in because this is a mini concentration practice. It's an absorption practice, a dozen seconds at a time. Okay. And second, in addition to having the capacity, we need to have the intention. That's where what you're getting there to there was so relevant. It's quite striking, isn't it, to appreciate that often it's hard as I said earlier, to help ourselves enjoy a positive experience for more than a few seconds in a row. And that's where th some understanding can come in, like, here we are, this stuff, recognizing that it's good for others, you know, to, to take in the good. Also recognizing, honestly, that the wonderful and horrible truth is we don't matter that much to most other people. <laughs> They're full of their own stuff. 
So if they, they don't care that we're taking in the good, they're preoccupied with feeling bad themselves. You know, they don't, they're like, whatever. So, plus, these are private moments, you know. Uh, all kinds of stuff can be going on behind the eyes. We're just kind of, I think about sitting around the dinner table with in-laws, you know, it's that time of year, and all kinds of stuff's happening, and just kind of feeling happy over here, marinating in pumpkin pie. Clock's ticking down, 58 minutes to go, 56, it's all good, exhaling, or, you know what I mean, whatever, you know, <laughs> going to the bathroom, escaping, taking refuge in the toilet, <laughs> you know, they don't know. They don't know. Anyway, okay, I'm making fun a little bit. You get the basic idea. So I think that too. And yeah, and um, then the last thing is to realize that if we would wish for our friend, right, or the, the least among us, if we would wish for that person over there to register positive experiences that are authentically available, to grow that good stuff inside her or inside him, if we would wish that for our friend, because it's benevolent and moral and just to wish that, why is it any less benevolent, moral, and just to wish that for ourselves? The golden rule is a two-way street. We should do unto ourselves as we would wish to do unto others. Right? And often we treat others a lot better than we treat ourselves. So, maybe one more person on, how about this wing of the room? Sorry, I'll get to, I'm kind I was going to say I'm a left-wing kind of guy, but you're not supposed to do politics, but I'm over here on the right side for a little bit longer. All right, right behind you, right behind you, right behind you. Zoom, zoom. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say, so I, I've read your books, and I've seen you in YouTube, and it's really a pleasure to be here with you in person, and I'm sure a lot of people in the room feel the same way, and thank well, you very kind. much. Thank yeah. you. I, oh, that was it? I really appreciate that. Morbid self-consciousness arising, letting it go, letting it go. Good. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, you know, I can't remember who... Sorry, I got to interrupt you. I was once on this TV show, and they did all this makeup stuff, and my, my kids said, wow, Dad, you look really good, you know. No more gray hair. But anyway, no, this is the real me. Okay. I can't remember whose work it is um, where I read this. It may have been Mark Epstein who talked about the average emotion that shows up on a functional MRI lasting about 12 seconds. Mm. And it's interesting to me <clears throat> that you're using sort of that same time frame for extending the positive. Yeah. We have such a tendency to extend the negative way past the 12 seconds. So could, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, sure. Um, and. I think that's really true. I mean, obviously, if someone has stably depressed mood, that mental state is lasting a lot longer than 12 seconds. You know, on the other hand, if someone is just so happy, the birth of a child, you know, uh, uh, some horrible thing they worried about is not going to come true, what have you, you know, there too it could last a lot longer. But it is really true that um, it's interesting. People tend to report 
if you do these little studies where you know their their smartphone buzzes randomly, and right then and there they're supposed to basically tap a little light, let's say, or a button, green, yellow, red, you know, green is, it's a positive moment, yellow, it's really neutral, red, it's, you know, somehow negative. And again, on the intensity scale that runs from zero to 10, most of these positives or negatives are ones and twos. Okay. Most people report remarkably that their uh, state of mind is predominantly positive. There's some important exceptions, obviously, but people tend to report that. The problem is, while there's a quantity effect for positivity, there's a quality effect for negativity because the brain is designed to overlearn and overgeneralize from negative experiences, especially compared to the way or the rate at which it learns from positive experiences. Even though, poignantly, the internalization of positive experiences is the primary pathway to cultivate and grow inner strengths broadly defined, including positive mood and compassion and loving kindness and spiritual wisdom. Right? That's kind of the, the issue there as it really shows up. And so for me, one of the um, really powerful takeaways, honestly, is to appreciate that if the path of awakening is in some, some large extent a path of learning, how do we help the brain learn? especially learn, broadly defined, these wholesome qualities that we want to carry with us wherever we go, right? And so that's where, for me, getting con more control over attention and also clarifying intention in reference to taking in the good is relevant. And also where it's relevant, as I said earlier, kind of briskly, sorry about that, um, to look for, it's also relevant to look for those key resource experiences, your personal vitamin C, that's really going to address whatever needs you have these days, both in terms of the useful fiction of a framework I'm using here in terms of safety, satisfaction, and connection. What are the key resource experiences that will really help you? Or just more generally, what if it were more present in my mind these days would really help, right? Or what's the growing edge of my practice and how can I help uh, experiences that are in what the Russian psychologist Vygotsky called the zone of proximal development, the territory where it's not already consolidated, so there's no value added in reinforcing it, nor is it within reach, because then we can't get it anyway. But right in here, what's the learning zone right in here, where we're trying to help experiences, including spiritual experiences, broadly defined, we're trying to help them really sink in. So to me, that's another real key takeaway here. Yeah. Yeah. Positive ones, how do we avoid labeling, oh, that's bad, oh, this is good? Yeah. Uh, so, well, see, um, I'm, I myself am not that concerned about that labeling process because the truth is we all know what it's like to taste something good or taste something yucky, right? And I think, yes, you're right. We can get a good thing too far. We can get caught up in labeling and so forth. And in the and in the ultimate reaches of practice, that kind of labeling process falls away. There's just don't know mind, right? And in you know who is it? Uh, Annie Lamott. She has this uh, 
this talk, the great talk she did, something like, wow, help. What was the other one? Thanks, right. Wow, help, thanks, or some order. There's the wow, like, whoa. So there's a place for that. But that said, on the other hand, we're intentional. Think of the Noble Eightfold Path as including wise effort, which is defined as the cultivation of the positive and the falling away of the negative. How could we possibly do that without some discernment? So it's one thing to be discerning. It's another thing to be judgmental. I think that's a helpful distinction there. So to me, it's okay to realize that uh, I'm, let's say, having some uh, experience in the zone of proximal development that's good for me to really help stabilize and consolidate inside me. For example, I'm really starting to register what it feels like to be strong. Or maybe an insight I had in my 20s. Growing up, I realized that I had been a nerd, not a wimp. Right? That was a good insight, especially for a guy. I wanted to let that one land, you know? For example, we're trying to help it sink in. Or maybe we have a recognition, you know, it's not my fault my partner drinks too much. We want to really help that sink in. Or we might want to help it sink in, you know, the Sally Fields moment. Oh, you like me. You really, really like me. And we want to help that sink in because maybe we grew up and we didn't feel so liked. We felt rejected, pushed aside, et cetera, et cetera, as I often did growing up. Um, we want to help it sink in. You know, to be able to do that, we have to recognize it, right? And then we help it sink in. Okay, maybe another person. Great, right there. And then we'll shift into something experiential and then have lunch. I think it's not too difficult uh, to uh, find out which experience is good and which is bad. Our body knows it. Because if the body has been, uh, this, if the sympathetic system has been activated, we all know what, what happens when we are afraid. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then the experience is bad. Whether we label it or not is, is entirely up to us, but the experience is bad. Yeah. On the other hand, if our parasympathetic system has been activated, which means relaxing and just the baseline thing, then that experience is good. That's all I want to contribute. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a wonderful summary. Um, what feels better, peace or fear and anger? What feels better, contentment or frustration or disappointment? What feels better, love or hate? Uh, love or envy, love or inadequacy. Right? Um, the green zone, as it were, you know, this territory here where there's no true basis of deficit or disturbance, no basis for craving, no basis for the second, you know, for we're in the third noble truth zone. The green zone feels good because it's good for us in pure biological passing on genes terms, right? The red zone, the reactive mode, fight or flight activation, you know, fear, frustration, and heartache in three umbrella terms that map to peace, contentment, and love in this framework I use, which is pretty close to the Buddhism model of the poisons being hatred, that's the antithesis of peace, greed, that's the antithesis of contentment, and the poison that he didn't name explicitly, but I think is implicit alongside the third poison of um, delusion, the poison of, if you will, heartache. Okay, so what feels better, right? The red zone doesn't feel good because it's not good for us. Mother Nature's plan is for animals to have the capacity to go reactive, to go red, but only for short periods of time. 
punctuated by long periods of time in the green zone, because that's how you can pass on genes, right? The problem with modern life is that we tend to hang out in the red zone in terms of mild to moderate chronic stress. Think of that as the pink zone, if you will, right? <laughs> anyway, okay, so I, we could do a lot of stuff. I better keep going because I really want to use this basis now around craving and drive states as a way into the fundamental topic of selfing, okay? And get something experiential in before we go on a break, all right? So strap on your, your, I, you know, your IQ generators. We're going to do a little insight stuff here from the Buddha. Okay, so here we go. Whoops. I want to say first, before we go, as Lao Tzu puts it, keep a green bough in your heart and a singing bird will come. As we gradually cultivate that inner sense of peace, contentment, and love, it creates wonderful positive cycles with other people, right? Because you can just flip it around. Think about what it's like for us when we're with others who are peaceful or they have this underlying sense of well-being and contentment and with others who are loved and loving, who feel loved, loved and loving, What's it like for us to be with them? It's pretty good, right? Flip it around. It's pretty good for them to be with you when you're in the green zone yourself. Okay? All right. Self. So, first off, some definitions. Uh, The distinction I want to draw, and I'll use it increasingly, is between self and person. That's a key distinction. So, the person does exist, certainly. And it... Um, has a history. The person is a particular body-mind over time. Persons have moral rights. They have moral duties. The person you are is different from the person I am, right? This side of full enlightenment, the sense that your thoughts are arising in my mind is psychotic, all right? There are different persons. Okay. Self, the way I'm going to use that word, Because often the word self means person, but then often the word self means the I, the presumed entity, the one who, in Western psychology and Western philosophy, is the owner of experiences and the agent of actions. It's the one to whom things happen. Okay, That's the conventional sense of I or self. And then, of course, we have awareness. Awareness is the field in which the sense of I ebbs and flows, in which there is more or less identification, more or less um, self-referential thinking or feeling or planning or processing. That's the space of awareness. Okay? So I'm distinguishing between the space of awareness and the ordinary or conventional sense of I or self. Okay, so far? So in this context then, what constitutes a self? What constitutes an I? The conventional, the the standard view in Western psychology or philosophy, sometimes made explicit, often it's implicit, is that what constitutes, what establishes this I, right, is Uh, that it is unified. There's only one I. It's coherent, it's unified, it's kind of an entity, right? Rather than being utterly deconstructed or deconstructible. Second, this I is stable. 
In other words, the I I am today is the I I was yesterday. And it's more or less the same I I was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Okay? It's enduring. Also, the I is independent. In other words, things happen to the I, but in its core, the I is not changed by things that happen to it. That's presumed to be true, right? And then last, fundamentally, the I is who the person at its core most fundamentally is. These are the basic notions that establish what an I is. Okay? Got it so far? Let's see if this is really true. So I want to do a little practice with you. Okay? And as I do this practice with you, see if you can notice the difference in your own experience and I'll do a lot of little contrasts between uh, the stance of there is, there is sight, there is sound, there is taste, touch, and smell, there are thoughts, there are emotions, there are desires, there is memory, there is planning, there are intentions, there are executive functions. In other words, there are all the various contents of awareness. Going back to the teaching that opened up this workshop in the first place, the Bahia Sutta, it's called. Bahia being the one to whom the Buddha is speaking in that teaching. Um, you know, can you, let the scene, can you let there be only the scene in the scene? Can you let there be only the thought in the thought? Can you let there be only the upset in the upset? Only the unpleasant in the unpleasant, right? So see what it's like to shift from that way, which I'll language as um, there are, Okay, there is. See what it's like to shift from that way of relating to experience to I am, I have. The difference between, for example, there is hearing, there is sound, or just simply the word sound, contrasted to I am hearing. That's the distinction to track. Okay, so we're just going to explore this directly in experience. Okay? Here we go. So if you can, right, be aware of breathing. What helps, I have found with this material, is to, like I said, a little bit of con- conceptualization goes a long way. You know, recognize some of these core ideas. The Buddha used a lot of uh, pointing out in terms of this territory. He, he really directed our attention to various aspects of our experience. But then what really makes it work bring it out of the philosophical clouds down into the body, into the immediacy of hearing, tasting, thinking, wanting. Okay? So to begin, noticing your breathing or choosing another body sensation if that's better for you. Starting with soft Noting thoughts from time to time, such as rising or falling, having to do with the sensations in the torso. Or soft noting thoughts like cool in terms of the temperature of the air coming in when you inhale compared to warmer when you exhale, or simply the basic thought, breathing or there is breathing. 
sort of hanging out with that for half a minute or so. And see what happens when you think to yourself, I am breathing. Notice what happens when you think thoughts like, I have breaths. Okay, try another little experiment, being aware of your feet. Being aware of sensation in the feet. Seeing what it's like to relate to that experience as There is sensation in the feet. Or something like sense of toes moving. And then contrast that with what it's like in your experience to have a thought like, my feet. Or a thought like, I am having sensation in my feet. Try this with sounds, starting with, you know, there is hearing. Or simply sounds.
maybe labeling specific sounds like creaking or Rick's voice or somebody breathing heavily, ventilation, projector fan. Then contrast that with what it's like to say inside the mind, I am hearing, or I hear a projector fan. In a moment, let's try this with seeing. So it it helps to start with your eyes closed. And then in a moment, when you open your eyes, see what it's like to relate to what's seen as simply seen, sight, seeing, maybe labeling it carpet, foot, color, so getting ready to, if you like, open your eyes. There is seeing. And then see what it's like to shift to, I am seeing. I see the carpet. Then let's try this one. Being aware of something 
you desire. Something kind of mild to moderate. And starting with relating to that desire and the object of desire as there is desire or there is the longing for whatever it is. Seeing what that's like in your experience. There even could be the thought like, it would be good to have such and such. then seeing what it's like to shift to the other mode, I want. What's that like? Try another couple of these. Next, bring to mind something that is pleasant. Something in your life these days that you like, the pleasant part of life. See what it's like to relate to it as pleasant, or there is pleasant, or chocolate is pleasant or even relate to it as there is liking for what is pleasant. There is liking for this, whatever it is. There is liking for chocolate. check out or shift to the experience of I like such and such. What's that experience? You can also try this with bringing to awareness something that's unpleasant. 
Maybe something in your body right now, perhaps some pain, or maybe a condition or event in your life. And see what it's like to relate to it as there is unpleasant, or such and such is unpleasant, or even there is not liking such and such. Explore this experience. And then, of course, as the last experiment here, see what it's like to relate to unpleasant in the other way, in terms of, I don't like such and such. Okay, and then finishing up, let's take another just half minute in resting in breathing, relating to it in terms of there is breathing, rising, falling. Okay, so I'm curious what you experienced in terms of that difference between there is and I am, essentially. 
and in the interest of time, uh, we won't use the microphone for this part. I wonder if people would be happy, would be willing to share what the distinctions were that they noticed between the there is mode uh, in the scene, there is only the scene, compared to the more I am or I have, I want, I like, I dislike. What are the contrasts there? So comments or questions, great. And if you speak up for everybody and be brief, that would be great. Um, I had a question brewing about the connection of fear to craving or even addiction. Tell you what, before I go there, could you just, if you, if you like to share the distinction between the there is mode and the I something mode, yeah, and then I'll come back to that, yeah. Yeah, well I noticed that when I was in the there is, there wasn't the fear. Oh. And then when I was in the I, I am, um, or I see, or whatever, there was such a narrowing that there was fear because there was such a narrowing that there wasn't, um, I wasn't aware of in, in more of a global way. Yeah. And that lack of awareness in more, more in the global way seem to um, create the fear. Great. I think you said, you ans- you, I would say what you just said there. Yeah, it's interesting that as we experience being this more contracted entity I, then suddenly we're vulnerable and fear rises, right? And we also have more to protect and hold on to. And that's a preview. So that was great. You, you saw it right there. That's great watching to watch the shifting. Okay, just more people sharing. Yeah, right there. And speaking up if you could, so I don't have to repeat it. Okay, good. So personalizing it made you react to it instead of respond to it. Good. Right there. Sophia? Simply, there is, was very, felt expanded, and I am, or I feel, was very contracted. Okay. Shockingly so. Yeah. All right, how about in the back or the hand right there? Yeah, I got it. Isn't that interesting? Okay, thank you. How about right there? Um, I, I noticed while I was doing it that I was probably feeling the opposite from what was intended with the desire part. For example, for me, like when the desire was just the desire, it seemed like more powerful. Uh-huh. Whereas when I put the label on and said there is an I, like a self who desires, it kind of became more detached and I could look at that and see, okay, maybe that is not really needed. Whereas if there is Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I hope you heard what he said. You know, um, with regard to desire, it reminds me of the, I think Jack Engler, psychoanalyst and Buddhist teacher, had this line, you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. In other words, sometimes it helps, I think, to have that observing ego, as it were, detachment from desire, so we don't feel so swept away by it, as a kind of transitional place to, the, to where we can get to where, yeah, there is wanting, um, and it need not hijack consciousness. Yeah, great. All right, a couple more people, then a few comments here. Right? How, what was it like for you?
Oh yeah, interesting. So I tends to isolate us and you know separate us, whereas the there is mode tends to open us out into relationship, which I think you were indicating felt pretty good. Okay, how about a couple more people? Yeah, all the way in the back. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's great. She was saying that when she went into there is sort of whoosh, tended to dissociate, you know, uh, and whereas the I am felt well, wonderful, you know, more present. Sure, I think it's really just see what's there for you. Okay, a couple more people right there. Uh-huh. Uh, I felt a lot of like a tingling sensation. I was really in touch with the sensation. But when I was thinking then my feet, I stopped feeling that sensation as much. Oh. Um, maybe then, the, the, maybe less aliveness when you moved into the my feet, perhaps right, compared right. to there is feet, which had a lot of sensation for you. Yeah, okay. and, and also with the um, hearing. Yeah that uh, there was almost this, once I started hearing things with the there is hearing, it was like, oh, hello, you know, hello, yeah. bird squawking or whatever. And then, but once it came to I'm hearing, then it was a little bit of agitation. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of agitation implicit in the eye. Okay, fine. And then last person, Jeff. Right. When I was doing the there is, there uh-huh. seemed to be much more a light notational sense of things. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing the I am, a poncha, story, run on, mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, so there is, able to stay in the present, not swept away, you know, just with it. Whereas I am, then getting spun into thought, uh, you know, papancha, the word in Buddhism for proliferation, mental proliferation, yeah. So there, we, you've heard of a variety of people, sorry to not get to more people, but um, it does seem that the sense of I can serve functions like... Uh, giving us some sense of control or mastery in relationship to desire or perhaps a sense of really being here rather than kind of spacing out, dissociating, on the one hand. On the other hand, I think what a lot of people reported is that when we move into the eye, uh, it feels more contracted. There's more sense of craving in it. We tend to get, there's more of a sense of positionality, more anxiety, more to defend or protect or lose, right? and also um, more sense of separation from others, okay? So that part, but also really implicit in this whole experience is that these constituting ideas of what creates a self, in the narrow way I'm using that word here, are actually not present in your own experience. In other words, what's actually present in experience is that there are kind of many I experiences. It's made up of many parts. Even to the sense of having different perspectives or sub-personalities that have different views. So the sense of me, right, is compounded, not unified. And you know, there's kind of the old joke, the I who sets the alarm the night before to exercise early in the morning, then there's a different eye that wakes up at six in the morning. Who set the darn clock? You know, right? Different eyes. There's the eye that's, 
you're going to have all those good intentions at the start of the new year and the eye that starts slipping within days, if not hours, right? Okay. Then also impermanent. Instead of the eye being enduring, you can see that it ebbs and flows. I mean, literally just a little prompt from me. Go back and forth between there is breathing versus I am breathing. You can see that the sense of I, you know, increases and decreases continually. And also is continually shifting in its qualities. It's not enduring, it's impermanent. And you can also see that the sense of self, the sense of I, me, myself, and I, uh, arises dependently. It's not independent. Literally, little prompts from me or the ebbs and flows of your own attentional processes or moment-to-moment sense of uh, being here, those factors, those causes, are continually changing the sense of self rather than the sense of self being independent from the world altogether or other people. And then last, of course, the sense of I is just one more content of mind. I'll get to this a little later, but the, the real issue with the sense of I is not so much that it arises. It will arise. Beliefs about I will arise. The sense of self will arise. Very often in experiencing, there's this implicit presumption that there is an I or there are presumptions about the nature of I or that there will be a future I or there have been past me's, right? Uh, That stuff will come and go. The issue is not that it comes and goes. The issue is that we privilege it and hold on to it and we identify with the self, sense of self that arises in the mind. So the net of all this, really, if you think about it, is that the so-called constituting characteristics of the conventional notion of self cannot actually be found in our direct experiencing. Whoa. <laughs> that can be kind of disorienting. Um, and so we're going to go more with this after lunch, but I invite you to just kind of observe the ebb and flow of the sense of I. The sense of I, as others I think have noted here, tends to constitute around a strong sense of unpleasant um, or pleasant or heartfelt, the sense of being with other people. And see what it's like as you have lunch soon to engage what's pleasant or unpleasant or heartfelt um, or neutral to engage all that uh, with some mindful awareness of the sense of self rising and falling. And see what it's like to explore this circular relationship between craving and selfing. In other words, craving, you know, around unpleasant, pleasant, and heartfelt, craving tends to create a self in the mind, in the moment. Tends to congeal or activate you know, a sense of self. On the other hand, being a self, being me, you know, real important, um, tends to create craving, right, in a circular kind of way. So see if you can, play around with this in your own experience. What's it like to talk to others with a relatively deactivated sense of self, a relatively deactivated sense of possessiveness or positionality? What's it also like to be with others or be by yourself Um, with very little craving, with very little resisting of what's unpleasant, very little grasping after the pleasant, very little clinging to what's heartfelt. See what that's like 
and see if you like it. Right? I think you will. So, uh, and, okay. So, so far, so good. And then when we come back, what we'll do is we'll look at this in the brain. Okay. How does all this stuff show up in the brain, which is really quite profound. And I'll give you a preview. The way it shows up in the brain is that the activations and the neural patternings that support moment-to-moment ebbs and flows of self-referential processing or the activations of representations of self, as that happens, as that ebbs and flows in the brain, you see the same thing in the brain. That many different parts of the brain get involved, that these activations are very impermanent, and they arise due to causes. So that we can see basically in the brain itself that nowhere is there a self to be found. Whoa. Okay? Okay, good. So I think we're going to have Katie, where are you? There you are, right here, over there, there. Uh, And it's okay to be a... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.